0: well good morning everyone welcome to this very unusual situation we have been obliged to go into isolation and yet by God's grace we're able to join together today in worship we're able to join together through modern technology And, of course, most importantly, by the gift of the Holy Spirit to share worship together, even though we are separate in our own homes and with our own families. I trust that the package of hymn music that we have provided for you enabled you to lead your family, or join in together in great song of faith and hope in Christ. And my hope is that after this message, that you will be able to uh, spend some time, either reflecting yourself or with your with your spouse or with your family, on some of the discussion questions that we've uh, left available to you. There's also notes available that uh, I've linked that you can use to follow along with today's sermon but most importantly this morning uh, we need to gather together in prayer this is very very unprecedented unexpected two weeks ago we would never have expected to have to uh, go into this uh, type of scenario but our God is sovereign Uh, There is nothing that has occurred that has not first passed through His sovereign power, and He has ordained it. And He will bless us as we gather together in the Spirit on this, the Lord's day. So please join with me as we pray, and uh, as we uh, then look into God's Word for His instruction for us. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, First of all, we want to praise you and honor you that you are God. There's none like you. From the beginning of time and even till today and to the future, you have a plan. And your plan is being unfolded by King Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, who has accepted the scroll. He is the one who's in charge. And even when things happen in forms of calamity and sadness... We know, Heavenly Father, that you are causing all things to work together for your church, those who are called of God, those who love you. And your plan is that we would become more like Jesus in this process. So, Heavenly Father, we also want to thank you for your word, that nothing can separate us from your word. Through the new birth, you have implanted Uh, the Word of God in our hearts, our desire to learn and to grow. And we have been given the gift of the inscripturated Word of God in our Bibles. And so, Father, I pray, first of all, for help for me. This is a very unique situation, none that I've walked through before. And you give help to those who are listening and engaging. And I pray, Lord, that at the end of the day, we will rejoice. We will always rejoice, for we have committed ourselves unto you, and you are faithful. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I recently was looking at a YouTube debate from the Veritas Forum, in which... One of the participants, uh, an atheist by his own profession, uh, Dr. Andy Norman of Carnegie uh, Mellon College, provided a definition of faith in in all due respects, in his comments, he said that faith is nothing more than positive. Thinking. He gives an illustration of the, of an event that took place when he was in school. He was always a sad person. He reflected sadness. He, he always uh, uh, reflected a sort of a downcast spirit. And one of the girls in his class uh, said to him, why do you always look so sad? And he basically said that he had nothing to be happy about. And she said to him, well, smile anyway. Smile anyway. So he thought about that and said, okay, I'll try that. And he went through the hallways smiling at people and he noticed something unique. They all smiled back. And then he commented that having practiced this for some time, the world even seemed to be a friendlier place to live. He hadn't noticed that before. Then he said in his comments that even his own social anxieties, his anxieties about being with people seemed to dissipate. They were dispelled because he had decided that he was going to smile anyway. He was going to be positive. He was going to have a better attitude. So Dr. Norman, when he looks at Christians and those in religious circles, says... Faith is just nothing more than being positive. And if you're positive, then good things will come back to you. Let me take you to another scene, a scene where some of you may have even observed it. A few years ago, there was a debate by the famous Bill Nye, the science guy, who is a proclaimed atheist, and Ken Ham who is uh, involved with uh, creation research and a professing Christian. And the debate was over origins of the world. They were debating the Genesis account. They were debating whether uh, there's a God. In the course of the conversation, the moderator asked both of them, what evidence would there be that if you stumbled upon it, you would in fact change your position. Bill Nye listed a number of things that would change his mind about God and religion. And when Ken Ham, the Christian, was asked, he said this, and I quote, I'm a Christian. Nothing is going to persuade me that the Word of God ...is not true. Now, beloved, Mr. Ham is a Christian, and he's a brother. This is not a personal attack. This is a friendly and loving criticism. But I want to suggest to you that for a Christian to say, "...nothing can persuade me that the word of God is not true," is both an unbiblical statement and it's an untrue statement you see the apostle paul certainly believed that something would demolish his faith the apostle paul believed that there was something out there that if proven would crush the christian belief system in 1 corinthians 15:14 paul wrote if christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain That's a very clear statement. If Christ has not been raised, that would dispute the entire Christian faith. The whole ideas and notions and values and and instruction and axioms that are part of our Christian faith would be demolished if it was to be proven that the resurrection did not occur. So my main point this morning, and the main point that I want to convey to you in this message, that it will be revealed in the text that we look at, is that Christianity is evidence-based. In fact, in our study, Jesus is going to say this, "...believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father." My text this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, in the 10th chapter, and we're going to read verses 31 to 42. I hope you have a Bible with you, I hope you have a device with the scriptures on it, and you follow along as I read in my text. That's Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 31 to 42. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man made yourself out a god. Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, and he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is God's holy word. Jesus made a stunning claim in verse 30, which I didn't read. He said, I and the Father are one. The Jews understood that he was claiming to be God. And so in verse 31, where we start our passage this morning... We read, they picked up stones and again to stone him. You see, stoning was the practice of uh, it was the punishment of blasphemy. In Levit- Leviticus 24:16, confirmed by Deuteronomy 13:6 to 11. If someone blasphemed, they were to be stoned. These Jews believed with all their heart, that Jesus was blaspheming and his due result would be capital punishment. But Jesus continues the dialogue. He says, Okay, of all the good works I've done, which one are you stoning me for? Jesus is obviously taking this discussion, this argument, moving it away from blasphemy, and moving it towards the evidence that he has given through his life and his ministry. In fact, last week, if you recall, we went through uh, just a summary, a brief summary, of the undeniable, the inarguable overview of Christ's ministry that all pointed to the fact that he is the Messiah. After two and a half years, the the, the collective evidence is overwhelming that Jesus Christ is... The Messiah. In fact, in verse, in the latter part of verse 25 in your text, you'll see that Jesus makes that claim. He said, My works support who I am, they give testimony to who I am. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. This is really important. This is important to understanding this text. Jesus views his works and his words as making a singular claim. In other words, when you take what he says with what he does, it all does one thing, and it points to the fact that he is the Christ. Imagine going into a doctor's office, and as you enter his or her office in the, in the, in the inspection room, you see certificates on the wall that all claim to the fact that this doctor is qualified to consider your case. That does make a statement to you. But when that doctor successfully diagnoses your case, and that doctor successfully prescribes something for you to do or to take, that heals you from your condition, you can look back and say, not only did the diploma affirm the fact that they are a qualified doctor, but the very treatment that I received at their hands together all point to the fact that they are the real deal. They are authentic. You see, the Jews failed to understand Jesus on two essential points. One is they didn't understand that his miracles pointed towards the fact that he's the Messiah. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand that they were signs. And I'll talk a little bit about that later. And they didn't believe his words. They didn't believe his words. And Jesus is teaching them, well, if you don't believe my words, at least look at what I did. That should be sufficient. That's sufficient evidence. Jesus then introduces them to a very difficult argument. It's been a tough argument for theologians and expositors to unpack. It's found in verse 34 to 36. Jesus, upon hearing that they are charging him with blasphemy for saying that he's the Son of God, takes them to their own text of Scripture, takes them to their own Scriptures. He takes them to Psalm 82, verse 6, where the psalmist recounts the words of God to leaders, to authorities, and God says, and and he says to them, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. So this is an obscure text. This this is a concept not easy for us to understand. But the psalmist recounts the fact that God thought of leaders in Israel, governing authorities, even perhaps priests and prophets, as, quote, sons of God. By citing Psalm 82, verse 6, I believe Jesus is trying to say that if mere mortals could be called sons of God, small g, then it certainly must be okay for the God to refer to Jesus as the Son of God. In fact, I think what Jesus is saying is that if God sent me, Jesus, into the world to be the Savior, and this is attested by my works, isn't it a greater blasphemy to deny that? So Jesus returns to his main argument in verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus wants them to know that the conclusion of his claim combined with his works equals that he is God. And that should lead them to believe. But you notice it didn't. In verse 39, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped. Jesus removed himself from the public scene and moved across the river to Jordan, where the late John the Baptist had been baptizing. You recall that he was executed prior to this. So Jesus went into that area of Jordan, It would be a natural route for him to go because he was heading eventually to Jerusalem. He went into that area of Jordan. He stayed there for a while. And the people that came to him remembered the words of John the Baptist. But now they had seen the works of Jesus. They remembered John's words And now when they combine that with the miracles and the signs that Jesus had done, we have this absolutely delightful conclusion. And many believed in Him there. Beloved, I'd like you to again remember the main thought of this message. It's found in verses 37 to 38. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand, that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. The point of this passage, I believe, for us, is to affirm the truth that the Christian faith is evidence-based. That means that if your faith is based on a positive attitude, if your faith is based on wishful thinking, if your faith is just hoping for a hopeful disposition, and you do not have any evidence, your Christian faith is suspect. Some people call the gospel of John the book of signs. All through the gospel, there are signs. You'll remember in John chapter 2 at the wedding of Cana, John records this is the first sign that Jesus performed. All through this gospel, then, you have signs pointing to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the one and only Savior of the world I would argue that the most important sign is the last one when we leave this chapter and move into chapter 11 we're going to see the sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead but I believe the last and the final sign is the fact that Jesus Christ himself will rise from the dead this was deeply on the heart of the writer Remember the purpose of this book that's recorded in John 20, verses 30 to 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. Did you hear the purpose of John as inspired by the Holy Spirit? There are many signs in this book and they are written so that you might believe. Again, let me affirm, Christianity is an evidence-based faith. So as I conclude, I want to address two groups of people there's always two groups of people the first group includes those who have not believed that Jesus is the Christ the first group involves those who have not received him as their savior the first group involves those who have not repented and turned from idols and put their faith in the true and the living God. The first group of people involves non-believers, non-Christians. If you're in that group, you have a view of Jesus. I don't know what it is, but you have a view of Jesus. You certainly can't believe that he's God. You've not trusted Him as your Savior. Some of you will say, I want evidence. I only believe what I see. I only believe the evidence, like scientists might say. I have good news for you this morning. The evidence is overwhelming. And the main piece of evidence has never been disproven. People have questioned the resurrection of Christ. They've mocked it. They've tried to explain it away. But they've never disproved it. Paul said, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Therefore, the Christian faith is genuine, it's substantive. It's undeniably true. So if you're in this first group, I plead with you today. If you don't believe because of the words Jesus said, at least believe because of the uncontested reality of the resurrection of Christ. Many Christians have profited by the work of an apologist by the name of Josh McDowell. His early book, which has been edited and re-edited and reprinted over and over again, has a title that has remained the same throughout the generations. And the title to his main book on the subject of defending the Christian faith is Evidence That Demands a Verdict. If you're in this first group, there is evidence that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That truth has never been disproved. Therefore, my appeal to you, my appeal to you as a pastor to a non-Christian, there's the evidence. It demands that you respond. It demands that you respond. And like the early church, particularly, I'm thinking of the Apostle Thomas, who struggled with his faith. When he saw the Savior with the marks in his hands and the wound in his side, he fell before him and said, My Lord and my God. The Bible gives evidence that is irrefutable and it demands that you and I respond and if you're not a believer I ask you to respond I plead with you to respond by falling on your knees and surrendering your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior I also want to encourage those of you who are listening who are believers those of you who are Christians Please don't buy into the that Christianity that is sort of a blind leap of faith. It's not. The idea that faith is a blind leap is a fallacy. It's a denial of the scriptures. Don't live your life on wishful thinking. Don't live your life on hopeful thinking. Our faith is based on the evidence of the works of Christ and particularly the fact that He died and on the third day He rose again. And that's an indisputable truth. Our faith is based on the the evidence of Christ's resurrection supported by all the promises that He made. We're called to live by faith, but it's not to live by faith in faith. It's not faith in wishful thinking. It's faith in the objective, written, identifiable promises of God's Word. Remember that parenthetical thought that Jesus said to the Jews? The Scriptures cannot be broken. Why? Because the one who said it is the one who said he would die and rise again. And he did. Therefore his words are faithful. And you can trust them. Christianity is an evidence-based faith. It's based on a rock. Not on sinking sand. I want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, listening to this message that you are built up and strengthened this day, that the promises of God are sure, the promises of God are sure, they're reliable, you can trust them, because the one that said it is the one that also said, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer and die. No one will take my life from me. I voluntarily lay it down and I have the power to pick it up. And he actually did that. His words can be trusted. Will you join me as we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank You that You sent Your Son, Your one and only Son, to this earth. And by His works, He proved that He was the Son of God, the Christ, the Savior of the world, our Lord. And more importantly, we thank You that on the third day after He had been killed, He rose again before a multitude of witnesses and the world has yet to disprove that fact that he is alive and we believe with all our hearts that our Savior is today ascended and sitting at the right hand of God and there he is praying for us there he is interceding for us and this same Savior who is praying for us who is saving us and keeping us day after day, will someday come again, and we will see Him in all His glory. He will be glorified among His saints, and we will worship Him forever. On that day, there will be no more tears. On that day, there will be no more sickness and sadness, no coronavirus. On that day, there will be no sin, On that day, we will be made perfect in righteousness. And so, Father, we look forward to that great and glorious day. And our hope is placed in you. And we pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Again, I want to thank you for tuning in and listening. I've been praying that this sermon would be a blessing to you in your present situation. I trust that you will go to the discussion guide. For there, I attempt to ask some pertinent questions that would help you in your discussion. And you will notice that I encourage you also to sing, whether you're alone or with your spouse or with your family, that great rousing him of faith, standing on the promises. For indeed, that's what we do in this day and in every day to come. The Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious to you. May he turn his countenance towards you today and give you peace. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray this. Amen.